Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new Books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans and the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Olivia Branscombe. And I'm Tim Lundy. The presentations you are about to hear come from an event held on February 3rd, 2021, honoring the work of Dustin Stewart, an assistant professor of English and comparative literature at Columbia University. Professor Stewart studies poetics and theology in the late 17th and 18th centuries. In 2020, Professor Stewart published his first book entitled Futures of Enlightenment Poetry. The book offers a new history of English poetry from John Milton, who died in 1674, to the Romantic poets of the late 1700s and early 1800s. During this span of time, the intellectual movement known as the Enlightenment emphasized the use of the bodily senses to gain knowledge about the material world that challenged accepted religious teaching. Some religious poets embraced material embodiment, the idea that the human soul naturally belongs in a physical body, while others imagined the freedom of the soul detached from the body. But both groups of writers saw poetry as a way for readers to experience the strange futures that awaited their bodies and souls in the afterlife, right now, in the present moment. For Professor Stewart, the tension between these two ways of imagining the body, the soul, and the future defined the poetry of the Enlightenment, and it remains a productive opposition even in contemporary poetry. First, we will hear Professor Stewart describe the argument of futures of Enlightenment poetry and explain some of the questions that led him to write this book. Afterward, we will hear a response from Christopher Brown, a professor of history at Columbia University. Can a poem make you feel like you've died and gone to heaven or someplace better? Can it give you somehow mental or spiritual practice for the afterlife, for the world to come? Some poets in Enlightenment England dared to think so, even though this isn't the sort of speculation we tend to associate with their period. Yet these poets disagreed just as theologians had long disagreed about what that future state would be like. The poets worked out strongly contrasting visions of a future made present in verse. One vision plays up the Christian idea of the body's resurrection, while the other emphasizes the soul's immortality. My big point in this book, though, isn't just that these two models are, are different, are, are incompatible even. It's that each one gets its momentum by having the other one to reject. Uh, a poetry of bodily resurrection needs to leave the disembodied soul behind, and a poetry of the disembodied soul needs to consign the body and its time to the past. That's a one minute summary of Futures of Enlightenment Poetry, my 300 page book. Um, a bit about the book's origins uh, and its structure might be helpful before you hear uh, several different responses. I wanna organize these thoughts um, in, in moving from one word, rhythm, to another word, source. So from rhythm to source. My initial problem, eight, nine years ago, and what became a, a nine year process, was that I found um, John Milton, 
the poet with whom I began, uh, to be a, a kind of materialist uh, in philosophical and theological terms. Certainly the, the critics and scholars whose work was, was influential for me emphasized uh, Milton's materialist view uh, of reality. But I also found that his, his self-proclaimed heirs uh, in the 18th century, so some mid 18th century poets, Edward Young is my main guy, but some others too, um, such as uh, Elizabeth Singer Rowe uh, and Mark Akenside. These were poets writing verse, um, writing poetry that, that struck me as, as recognizably Miltonic in its style, in uh, its, um, its themes and topics, its, its ambitions. And yet uh, they, they used that poetry to work out uh, a, the a theological vision that was, was strongly counter-materialist, uh, that, that resisted the kind of outlook that I had come to, to see as, as decisive for Milton. This recognition of a problem, um, th this disconnect between what I saw Milton doing and, and what uh, his um, self-styled heirs were doing um, between 50 and 70 years later after Milton's death, raised some questions for me of literary history. How, for example, was Milton rebranded uh, in, in these intervening years? What, what effort did it take? What, what work was involved? It also raised questions for me of, of intellectual history. How did these mid 18th century poets with their souls soaring out into, into space um, fit with understandings of enlightenment that, as far as I could tell, uh, emphasized the, the tangible, um, the, the, the secular, the, the, the provable, um, the material. Were they enlightenment figures or, or maybe counter-enlightenment figures? The resolution I came to to my problem um, took me back to Milton. Maybe the, maybe the right approach wasn't simply to say that Milton is uh, timelessly a materialist, that, that he, present tense, denies uh, the idea of a soul that can detach from a body. Maybe, I thought, with a kind of change of perspective, maybe the point um, is that, that he came to reject that idea, having, having thought otherwise earlier in life, and that's true. Looking at it this way, again, it's just a, a slight change in perspective, means that an, an emphasis on resurrection uh, can be seen as, as part of a pattern or a rhythm, a step that comes after a prior emphasis uh, on, on souls and, and immortality. This is a rhythm I came to think that, that could be long or, or short. It could, it could stretch out across a lifetime of, of spiritual searching, uh, or it could be compressed uh, into the space of a, of a single short poem. I also determined that this, this rhythm, as I was calling it, could be, could be reversible uh, in, in devotional or, or poetic practice. And I tend to treat the two as um, interchangeable for, for some of these writers. In devotional or, or, or poetic practice, you, you can take that pattern and, and turn it the other way. You could, you could start with a stress on, on the body and embodiment, and then you could move to, to a different kind of stress on, on a detachable soul, a soul that escapes the body uh, and, and gains new power uh, as a result. This recognition, this, this sense that, that maybe the thing I was talking about could be um, understood as a, as a pattern and, and also a, a reversible pattern, helped me to place uh, my mid 18th century poets in relation uh, to Milton who came before and to the kind of materialism that became ascendant uh, in Restoration England uh, and was on the march, uh, culturally speaking, in the early years of the 18th century. But it also eventually helped me to, to make sense of what historically came after 
uh, the mid 18th century poets. For these figures, uh, Young uh, and Akenside especially, uh, aren't just post-Miltonic writers. Uh, when critics talk about them at all, which isn't very often in, in my view, they, they tend to talk about them as, as pre-romantic figures of a sort. So they're in the middle, they're after Milton, but before Romanticism. And then it sort of struck me, and just as Protestant theologians kept needing to place the, the soul's disembodied life in between two phases of embodied existence, right? You have life on one side, resurrection on the other. The soul's uh, disembodied state is, is in between. So literary history um, needs to place these, these poets of disembodiment in a kind of middle, in a kind of intermediate state uh, between Milton on the one side and romantics on the other. I follow this chronology in the, in the major sections of the book. Um, the last two chapters consider major romantic writers uh, who, uh, as I argue, bring the 18th century poets and their, their detached souls back down to the earth, back down to the body. Um, they domesticate them, uh, as I say, uh, in the book. But I, I wanna resist the idea that they simply contain them. Uh, I use the introduction and the, and the final chapter in particular to suggest that a, a disembodied poetics just refuses to stay comfortably locked away in, in the cultural past. Um, it keeps wanting to reemerge. It keeps wanting to reemerge even among um, Anglo-American poets writing today uh, in the early 21st century. All of this left me, finishing the book, left me with uh, a richer idea of what a source can be, a more complicated idea of what a source can be. Sure, it's, it's something you can carry with you from, from an old context uh, into a new one and putting it, you know, putting it to new purposes. The 18th century poets did that with Milton, and then the Romantic poets in their turn did that with their 18th century predecessors. Yeah, that's a version of what a source can be. But I came to think that what you run from, what you do your best to escape, is also a kind of source. Obviously, I came to think about this in, in personal uh, as well as literary and historical terms. That thing that you're trying to, to break away from, um, that's, that's part of your rhythm too. That step has its necessary, its necessary place in your rhythm, its necessary part to play in shaping uh, the futures that are possible for you, futures that remain far away, or, or maybe futures that can be imagined right now experienced in advance. Next, we will hear a response to Futures of Enlightenment Poetry from Christopher Brown, a professor of history at Columbia University. Professor Brown is an expert on 18th century British history, particularly the history of slavery and abolition. In his comments, Professor Brown describes the experience of reading Professor Stewart's book as a historian and reflects on the different ways that historians and literary scholars approach the 18th century. At the end, we will hear a further response from Professor Stewart, and then both scholars will discuss the intersection between history and literary studies. Wow, all right, let me just say first that I wanted to sort of characterize my response to the book just as a reader. I'm very much um, out of my element here. I'm also out of my depth. Uh, I have to sort of own up to that at the outset. You know, more than once as I, I worked through the book, 
um, I could not help but feel that somebody else should be doing this job than me. Um, I, uh, <laughs> and I don't just mean this from the standpoint of a kind of, a, you know, false humility um, that some commentators uh, do. Uh, I mean, I, I've spent most of my adult life um, thinking about the 18th century and the British 18th century specifically. And yet I knew basically nothing about the material that this book covered, um, especially in its middle, um, substantial middle part. And even the figures that I do know something about, um, quite a bit about in some, um, some instances, such as uh, Toba Cuguano or Ignatius Sancho or William Cooper or John Newton or Phyllis Wheatley, um, they look so different here as for me to be almost unrecognizable um, from the historical figures that I, I thought I knew. I mean this in a really good way that they're unrecognizable. And I think this reveals, if nothing else, you know, there's a substantial gap that exists between the practice of history and the practice of literature um, in 18th century studies. You know, obviously, there are many of us who cross over. Um, I'm not one of them. <laughs> I'm very much of a historian's historian. And that there are two different modes and ways of being a scholar of this era is very much um, in some ways how it should be. We have different work to do um, and there is a lot of work to do, but what a difference, uh, what, what difference it makes to, to dive into the other side. And, you know, I couldn't help but feel a little bit like a bit of a tourist uh, in trying to get my bearings uh, in a, a territory that I thought I knew a little bit about, but was actually, you know, deeply unfamiliar. So let me say first though, that I found the treatment of disembodiment, re-embodiment, the oscillation between the spiritualist and the materialist positions just so captivating and so useful to think with. And also, you know, and I think this is partially a disciplinary difference, but I don't think that's entirely it. Because I've read a fair, I've read a fair number of sermons, for example, written by Anglican clergymen. And I read a lot of the public and private correspondence of Methodists and Anglican evangelicals um, in the 18th century. I spent a fair amount of time actually thinking about some of the theological positions of the period, theological disputes of the period, although not so much thinking about the place of the soul um, as in the way that those positions influenced, we might call public life. But needless to say, those the kind of speculations that are in this work um, regarding the soul are just not to be found in those kinds of materials. And I'm tempted to say that not only they cannot be found, but it's almost like they couldn't be imagined there. Although I guess it's possible that I miss them or I don't know the people that I've studied as well as I thought I did. Now this is in part, in large part, because of generic differences. These are poems, not letters or sermons. Um, but still the mindset of Roe, uh, Young and Aikenside seem as if it's from a, a, another age and another culture. And I think that's the point, or I think that's one of the points. Dustin establishes the key distinction in the interlude. It's key distinction between sort of Anglican, moderate, enlightenment, mainstream culture, and the world that he's exploring in the heart of the book. Um, and this really interesting interlude between the first and second parts of the book and this is on page 73, if anybody happens to have it, where he acknowledges the shadow book 
that he's not written. Uh, when she describes as a story about enlightenment poetry that could justifiably told if the modern enlightenment had flowed forward in an unimpeded sweep from Milton to Romanticism. And if a new push toward the spiritualist perspective with its contrary pattern hadn't intervened along the way. My larger point though, is that it did intervene. And so the bulk of the book is then devoted to exploring and explicating that spiritualist perspective. Now, since I have no training in and no skill for literary criticism, and I have an undergraduate transcript in my files that can prove it, I think what I'm left with is a kind of vulgar materialism. Um, and what follows is inspired by passages, um, two pages before of what I just read, where Dustin offers his concluding thoughts on Milton. And this really gets to the point that I, um, I most wanna concentrate on. While Milton doubtless wants his readers to anticipate a resurrection to come and to sort out what a, such a promise can mean, and I'm quoting, I'm quoting Dustin right now, he simultaneously encourages them to learn to live without it, building a workable existence for the indefinite meantime part of this return to embodiment and finding um, comfort, solace there. He emerges, this is Milton, as an exemplar of what I've characterized as the moderate enlightenment. His late work will not separate spirit from matter or leave earth for a heaven whose doors remain closed for now. Perhaps it's his hard-won presentism that may speak most resonantly to people today who cannot foresee a mode of existence radically different from our own, and who there can therefore do little better than wish for more time, more of life as it is now, or preferably more of an alternative tense that can appraise the present while still living in it. And Milton with no future might be just the poet for us. This is such an interesting statement to me. Um, and I'm not in a position to evaluate the reading of Milton, but I do wonder about the, you know, this closing statement, I'm just in the present might just be the poet for us. Because I have to wonder who the us is um, and for whom this preference to extend the present feels most urgent. Does it not depend at least somewhat with respect to the flight of the soul or the flight to join souls or the flight beyond souls, what one is fleeing from and not just a mortal present, but perhaps an unhappy one. And that seems clear in the biographies of the people that were spotlighted. For Roe, it's misogyny. For Young, it's loss and despair. For Akenside, it's uh, alienation and, and aggrievement for Wheatley, it's the status of being enslaved. And so you found the spiritualist poetic in today's Anglo-American poets. And I found this so interesting, who in three or four, in three of the four instances that you, of examples that you give, Tracy K. Smith, Dennis Smith and Kevin Young turn out to be black writers. So it almost comes close to implying that the subject position, one's biography, one's experience, determines, although I'm quite sure that's not the point, but there's a kind of almost an invitation to read it that way. And so I, I just guess I wonder what, what you would say to that. The linkage between experience, 
position, biography, suggests a different kind of location as a consequence for the exemplars of the moderate enlightenment, who quite literally are bracketed in the book at the beginning and the end. Theirs comes to seem instead like a poetics of complacency. Now, there may be a bit of stacking the deck here. Um, I mean, I get the sense that the spiritualists, the disembodiers, the escape artists hold much more appeal for you as a critic. And there is a way I almost feel like the milk gets set up as a kind of a contrast so that we can sort of feel that escape, that tension. You know, they emerge as not just iterators, but sources of inspiration. And I think for, you know, for today, and yet we have this confession from you at the very beginning, where you see, say, my religious sympathies these days lie entirely with the mortalist poetics, the moderate enlightenment. So there's a kind of a disavowal, and yet the whole spirit of the book feels like it's actually pushing the opposite direction. Um, and so I couldn't help but wonder about that disavowal. And so, and, and, and one last point. It's hard not to read this book and its discussion of embodiment and the spirit trapped working to get out of the soul and being pulled back in the soul and then, I mean, in the body and then yearning for more and not to think of this moment of us trapped in our homes, trapped in our bodies, concerned about a kind of, you know, the sort of the, the, the physicalness that we are inhabiting right now. And, and also for those um, who do have religious and spiritual lives that are about community, that are about church, that are about spaces of gathering, the ways that the spirit has been contained and forced down within us. Um, and so I guess the sort of the presentist um, position is not so much more of the same or more of the present, but um, a whole lot less of it. I'm exceedingly grateful for Chris's thoughts. And I, I, I do feel bad that you felt like you were reading in another language or, or at least reading material that didn't fit with the 18th century as you, under, as you um, tend to understand it and you know much more about it um, than I do. And yet I, I take, the, um, take the compliment that the unrecognizability of, of even the figures you, you do know very well um, can, can be a good thing and can provide a different, a different angle of vision um, and this, this sort of back and forth uh, interaction that, that we, you know, literary critics or literary historians and, and historians are, are, are having. Yeah, I think the speculations in this poetry, yeah, probably couldn't appear uh, in most of the, in the Anglican sermons um, you mentioned. But you're right, I'm trying to identify multiple enlightenments here, um, even within this, you know, broadly Protestant framework. Um, one um, setting up, resolving itself into a kind of a kind of moderate and, and modest harmony, marriage between body and soul. Yeah, maybe there's a soul, but that should stay in its place for now. Um, uh, it, it should um, abide by the rules. Uh, it should be peaceable. And then this um, refusal of that compromise is one of the things that characterizes these poets who who looked so so unfamiliar um looked unfamiliar to you yeah and, and you get around to some um important stuff chris at the, at the very end and i'll use that to, to come to my own end here the moderate enlightenment can can read as a sort of poetics um of complacency i think that's that's a fair assessment of of my reading and the curious thing about that is that you know milton is writing these things from a from a position of, of defeat from a position of loss uh, he's not writing them from a position of comfort. 
So why, why extend, even with, you know, whatever redemptive quality that extension, you know, could happen? Why want to extend that? I guess I would say for, for Milton anyway, the process of, of waiting has become indistinguishable from its object. I think that's language from the book that just sort of came into my head now, has a tendency to do that. Um, but this idea that, that patience is itself um, the, the practice, even if it means actually sort of creating time, creating additional time between yourself and the thing you're waiting for, that time is, is what devotion feels like. Certainly it's what, it's what poetry requires for someone like Milton. Uh, and then I'm, I'm grateful for, your, for asking the question about, um, in my introductory chapter, when I'm trying to suggest that this poetics of disembodiment doesn't simply go away. It's not defeated once and for all, um, but it sort of recurs and, and repeats uh, even today among uh, black writers uh, specifically, uh, a couple of people named Smith. Uh, for example, and, and a Young, I play with this comparison between Kevin Young, and our own contemporary, and, and Edward Young uh, from the 18th century. Yeah, the, surely the, the biographies of these poets, their subject positions, has something to do with their relation to futurity one way or the other. Um, the, um, you know, several of the poets that I'm talking about, you know, um, themselves don't have children. So, so the idea of reproductive futurity is, is not really foremost um, in, in their minds. But the sense that the writers of color can still incorporate, can still draw upon this vision of, of being not dead, but, but alive somewhere better, um, that, that's a tool. It sounds like a trap, right? But I, I, I want to say that it's a tool. Um, that, that, that poets, including you know, radical poets, including you know, uh, queer poets, uh, including you know, trans poets, uh, poets of color, uh, who find themselves outside of the, the poetic mainstream are still, are still working with. And I wanna, um, I wanna look for those places rather than to, to discount them um, from the outset. And I'll leave the question about, um, I'll leave the, your words about um, COVID and containment. Uh, yeah, may, maybe sometimes, um, less rather than more of our actually existing present tense. That would be good. I, I hope my comments did not come as a, I didn't intend them to sound troubled. Uh, I actually think that there are really uh, important points of intersection, but I also just found the analysis and the readings and the attention of a kind that historians do not typically do. So rewarding, so fascinating, and so, uh, in some ways, sometimes jarring that it had the effect of kind of tilting things and making, for example, the Anglican mainstream, which I know a lot about, seem as this thing that's missing these other things that are happening alongside. So, you know, and the fact of the matter is that, you know, literary criticism in the 18th century has paid far more attention to history than the other way around. So, you know, I, I don't, I realize this as a kind of a gesture of respect um, for all of the skills that you all have that we don't learn. Um, and I think that there is a lot to learn. And so, you know, that's the, that's the spirit from which I, I made those observations. I also say, you know, the 18th century is kind of suspended between the early modern and the modern, and it's just kind of, you know, it's kind of a, often a poor stepchild to both. And, you know, I think one of the things that this has really left me thinking about is just how rich the 18th century is 
and that one can be working on the same period with entirely different questions and peoples and to not have any sense of each other. Um, and that just, I think, speaks to its expanse, its vastness. Yeah, I'll, I'll just add that probably one of the um, impediments to that, that cross-disciplinary dialogue um, is the role of the reading for literary critics, you know, um, readings of, of poems, readings of novels. It yeah, depends on which, which critic you ask, but what's the purpose of those? What are those for? Are those sufficient unto themselves? Um, or, or are they meant to uh, be put to the purpose of some larger, uh, some larger claim about cultural history? You know, if that's right, right? If, if the goal is to, to do readings for the sake of making larger arguments about, about the history of culture, then probably one of the things that's difficult is that the, the, the evidentiary burden on readings uh, for, for the literary critic is something that, that historians probably struggle with um, or, or find that they, they just don't need, but not all historians. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast celebrating Dustin Stewart's Futures of Enlightenment Poetry. We hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Kayama L. Glover's A Regarded Self, Caribbean Womanhood, and the Ethics of Disorderly Being from Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Tim Lundy. And I'm Olivia Branscombe. Our theme music is the song Moonrise by Poddington Bear from soundofpicture.com.